Hello, and welcome to the Future Center podcast. I am your host, Ivana Gazibara, and I lead the Future Center, which is an open participatory futuring platform, helping organizations and individuals prepare for complexity and uncertainty and act for a sustainable future. We are rapidly running out of time to avert the worst of the climate and biodiversity crises. Now more than ever, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reimagine how the world works. As we grapple with what next, it's vital we understand how the world around us is changing right now and what that might mean for the years ahead. So how can we reimagine our future? What do we want it to look like and how do we get there? In this podcast series, we're going to be talking to the innovators, activists, and thought leaders tackling the big challenges and creating the transformative solutions. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. So this is our first podcast on the Future Center, which is so exciting and also slightly daunting. So please bear with us if we're a bit unpracticed at this, because I'm basically taking here a sort of action research approach of, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and so I'm just going to take a crack at this. So I'm your host, Ivana Gazabara. I lead Forum for the Future's Futures program, including the Future Center, which is our participatory futures platform and the space where we're tracking what's new and emerging in the sustainability world. And this podcast series is all about identifying leverage points for transformation in the decade of climate action. And the theme I really want to work with right now is funding transformative change. So in other words, how can we enable capital to flow into the right solution spaces And how can we create system change strategies as funders and investors to support the change we need to see over the coming decade? So my guest today is Will Dawson, who is first and foremost an old pal and full disclosure, a former forumite, but he's also a passionate climate advocate and change maker. So Will is a director at an organization called Impatience Earth, which provides support for philanthropists whether that's foundations, companies, families, or just individuals, to explore and understand climate-related giving. And they're able to do this pro bono thanks to the support of the Quadrature Climate Foundation, who funded them to mobilize $100 in commitments from new or growing climate donors. So that's a really bold goal. So Will is a kind of climate matchmaker, I guess. And the reason his work is so important And I do find this totally mind-boggling, but just 2% of philanthropic giving goes to climate action globally, which is really, really hard to believe in some ways. But also it means there's a massive opportunity here to leverage the power of philanthropic giving to respond to the climate crisis. So Will, thank you for joining me. And have I done this intro justice? You certainly have, and it was very kind. Thank you. It was lovely to be on the first podcast of the Future Center, which is a great platform. Indeed. And it's nice for me as well to have a very friendly face on the first podcast, or rather a very friendly voice. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a kind of slightly flippant first question for you, but I just want to know, what does your average working day look like now? And what does it mean in practice to be matching donors with climate projects? So we're kind of six months old, so... An average day is different to what it was three weeks ago, I guess, as we're kind of scaling up and starting up, which is very exciting to do as well as an organization. So 
what we get up to is meeting people of those kinds, whether that's people working in companies or in um, foundations or individuals or families that want to increase their or interested in increasing their giving to climate change action. As you said, it's um, vastly underfunded at the moment compared to the scale and urgency of the challenge. So we have many sessions where we talk to people about the basics of climate change and kind of climate science and what the latest on that is and what the gap between where we are in terms of decarbonizing the economy, getting to net zero versus where we need to be is and what the consequences of going beyond that are. And most people come to us or speak with us have a pretty heightened concern about climate change, which isn't going to be unusual because 85% of people in the UK are already concerned about climate change. And, and then it's about helping them to understand free meetings on workshops that we run, how what they're already concerned about is already related to climate change, because they often come at it feeling overwhelmed by the subjects and um, because it's so all-encompassing and broad, but also the potential options to fund into it are similar. So it's really helping them to make sense of that and to see how their current passions and interests can already be aligned with climate action through their philanthropy. And then it's meetings through networks of funders. There's some big climate funders now, and you mentioned our funder Quadrature. There's Children's Investment Fund Foundation. There's many others as well. And they have, we speak to them about what they're seeing coming up in terms of opportunities for funding. And we speak to other climate donors as well to see where there's opportunities for people that we work with and support to co-fund opportunities too, because as you said, many of them are new to climate philanthropy or going from small to bigger and doing that with others is something that's often really attractive to people. And so the world of climate philanthropy is clearly getting more and more dynamic. What are you observing about the key trends that are driving this space at the moment? What are climate philanthropists looking for and what are they funding? Yes, the first thing to say is when, when you know one philanthropist, you know one philanthropist. So everyone's different and it's actually quite hard at the moment to pick out particular trends because as you said only two percent of philanthropy is going to climate action and most of that is going from like 20 or so big funders but underneath that there's a wealth of new funders coming in that's what we're trying to encourage that have maybe thought before that you know governments have got this sorted there's the paris agreement businesses are committing to net zero left right and center and then you've got the likes of, you know, big funders coming in like Jeff Bezos committing a billion dollars into the space. And IKEA Foundation just made a similar pledge um, to spend an extra billion euros over the next five years, which is all great to see. And that's increasing that figure above from that extremely small base. But there's, there's extraordinary work going on with perhaps smaller organizations, those based in the global south. So Latin America, Africa, Southeast and Southern Asia that aren't being seen so much by fund holders in the global north. And we're really helping to mm. bring those to the attention of funders as well. And funders are starting to see that, that Africa receives only 3% of that 2%. And so there's extraordinary work and amazing ideas that are just completely going left behind by funders. And that's a trend that we're trying to accelerate and that's starting to happen as well whether that's organizations being set up there, like the African Climate Foundation, which just got started up last year and, and others. And then another big trend that we're really trying to encourage is 
to get more dollars going to organizations led by BIPOC leaders and stats just come out recently showing that only 1.3% of US philanthropy for environmental justice is going to organizations led by, by, by BIPOC people. So, you know, there's a huge gaps in diversity and inclusion to, to close as well in the climate Absolutely. science space. And we're really keen to, to work on all those challenges. Yeah, and so another trend we're seeing is that um, kind of the next generation of wealth holding families are, as, as young people are in general, more concerned on average about climate change as an issue and environmental crisis. And so are particularly keen to, when they become more philanthropic in their future to really align that passion and concern with their, their giving profile. So we're starting to support the next generation members of, of families through our work. And this summer we've got a programme dedicated to that, which is going to be free of charge over over June and July. So if anyone's interested in that, then do reach out to us as well. And based on your work right now, if you were to sort of pinpoint some key spaces for intervention, I mean, you've already spoken about kind of climate solutions in the global south and BIPOC leadership in this space. What, you know, if you were if you were sort of advising someone about where they should be putting their money for greatest impact, what might you tell them? It's a really good question, and we do get asked it. We really encourage donors to build their own confidence through kind of knowledge building about spaces and approaches and strategies and geographies. And we do that a lot. So we do workshops or expert meetings with people who hold knowledge on that. And we do find it's really important that they align that with what they already know about and what they're passionate about, because the sort of climate crisis is not going to be solved with an extra, with a year of increased giving. It's going to take a decade of increased giving. So we need people to kind of be committing for multiple years. And that means that they're going to need to be passionate about it and enjoy it and sort of be feel like they're learning as part of that journey. And so that's kind of our biggest thing really is like, what are you passionate about? What do you know about? What do you want to involve in your climate giving? And some of them are passionate about climate change per se as a single issue. And then um I can give some examples of sort of, uh, outcomes or strategies that we're seeing more attention on quite rightly. So in the climate action world, you've got basically a system where governments and companies are committing to maybe 2050 targets for net zero. And we see now three quarters of the global economy being, being covered by some kind of net zero target out to that kind of time frame, but a big gap between their 2030 targets with like much harder um, policy approaches and funding in place to get there that would see emissions halving, at least halving by 2030. And so a lot of what's needed is raising the ambition and shortening the time horizon from action and funding. And that takes advocacy and that takes kind of movements particularly as well. So and movements of people that are coming from more diverse points of view so whether that's young people which we've seen rising particularly in the UK and, and the US to some success but seeing those happen in the global south locations as well is really important seeing a BIPOC-led 
movements and getting much more diversity into the who's involved in climate action um, is really important. And then you know, getting new voices like parents who have huge concerns about the future generation into the movement as well. And what that takes from a funder perspective, we often see is a kind of letting go of needing to be certain about the carbon saving outcomes of their funding. So the funders really, which is valid as well. So some funders are like, I really want to know how many tons are going to be saved from this £100,000 grant or £100,000 portfolio or £1,000,000 portfolio or whatever it might be. And there you might look at kind of technological deployment of renewables or nature-based solutions of afforestation to take a certain amount of carbon out of the atmosphere. And all those solutions are, are needed. And one thing about climate philanthropy is it's almost impossible to do more harm. Other funders are saying we are prepared to take risks on you know, failure much more because the urgency is so great and the crisis is so great, or we are prepared to back strategies which are harder to measure the outcomes from. So people on the streets or people protesting and you know, it's hard to measure the causal relationship between that and a ton of carbon saved, but we can see the logic between that and raising the agenda, raising the media profile of climate, changing the political attitudes and appetites for setting bolder ambitions and more near-term ambitions and putting scrutiny on companies that they can't kind of get away with greenwashing targets etc. And I guess also I suppose bringing more diverse perspectives into what what that transformative action should be as well right so allowing for space from those who have not traditionally perhaps been at the table of right. kind of solution building, which is really brilliant and interesting. Absolutely. And you know, a huge amount of the world's forest lands are owned and managed by indigenous people. And it's a hugely important outcome that they are empowered to continue to protect those. And they're often under huge threats from commercial interests and have a voice which is rarely heard. So a lot of a lot of interest now is also in how you fund the protection of those lands and that can even start with mapping those lands and or the ownership of them because actually it's often that they find it hard to prove through the official channels their their sort of indigenous rights so even that kind of justice frame which may be well outside of the classic kind of climate action frame when people think about renewables and wind turbines and solar panels it's as much to do with everyone like that as it is to do with technology change all of that sounds amazing and really sort of spot on in terms of, I guess, what, what we're kind of seeing right now and what we have seen over the past few months, which is like really ramped up activity in this space. So that's both felt encouraging to see, and yet also, obviously, it's not enough, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that you are thinking along similar lines, as are a lot of sort of campaigners and activists in this space, what do you think are our blind spots at the moment? So, you know, this is almost kind of turning the previous question on, on its head. What are you worried philanthropists might be missing right now? Yeah, so I think, again, like there's no such thing as kind of a collective of philanthropists, but those with the power to fund 
at significant scales, like really significant scales, £100,000 or more a year into climate change, they should be doing that. That's the kind of blind spot in a way is that not enough money is going to climate action. And then there's nuanced debates, which are really important about where that goes within climate action system. So it's two things, really. One is to the big, big blind spot is that not enough is going to that. It's crazy that the mother of all challenges that humanity has ever faced is getting 2% of philanthropic dollars. I know. So crazy. It just makes no sense. But you can understand it because it's only a 30, well, you can say it's a 300 or more old problem because it comes from the historic constructs of how power imbalances have developed globally and but yeah in terms of in terms of like an emissions profile and real accelerated warming it's a 30 year old problem right or 60 year old problem and causes that philanthropists have been concerned about like education women's empowerment healthcare, have been around for as long as human history as problems and so it's great that philanthropists have been supporting those causes and want to continue to support those causes. And often they would feel that there's a, they might look at climate change and think someone really needs to do something about that, but I don't want to leave behind these causes and kind of stop funding this, this school scholarship program or this healthcare development program, because you know the outcomes of that are also really important. But yeah, climate change is a huge threat multiplier to all those systems of education and health. And so a lot of the work we do is helping advisors to philanthropists and philanthropists themselves to understand what we call intersections. So how healthcare and climate can be addressed for a common portfolio rather than having to make a choice between the two. And then you can build some great profiles and, and, and portfolios up. So some of the biggest healthcare funders in the UK have become climate donors because they recognize that climate change is really important to health but also some of the challenges are common to both like air pollution for example so if you fund the transition away from fossil fuels and the energy system and transport system you can help both climate and healthcare outcomes but to answer your question I guess about blind spots one like there's many and we've covered many of them whether that's diversity of who receives funding about where they are and then we go back to the global south and go back to particularly small organizations that may be harder to understand and find. And that's part of the service that we provide. And but then within sectors and technology, some of the most controversial options are getting the least funding. So carbon dioxide removal, for example, which almost all scientists, not a big consensus of scientists would say is required to get to 1.5 degrees. We have to have options to take carbon out of the atmosphere rather than just stop it going in. in terms right. of energy systems change so that might mean lots of forest creation or kelp and mangrove restoration on coastal areas which is all generally quite uncontroversial and good things if done in the right way with biodiversity and local communities at the heart good for many outcomes but there are more controversial options within there which may be more, more less working with trees and algae and plants and more with rocks and soils and and spreading things on land and things like that which take out carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and because they're controversial they don't basically get any funding but understanding them in a grown-up way would help us to answer questions about them 
Um, and so there are organizations starting to work on that. In mm. And so that's an interesting area that we've seen some donors become interested in and start giving to as well. That does feel like a buzzy space right now, I have to admit. Lots of stuff happening around carbon removal, including picked up recently on a on a conference called Air Miners. <laughs> mm-hmm. Air Miners 2021, which sort of made me think, oh, this is becoming a bit more programmatic. What else? Are there other things that are a bit like carbon removal that you think are really coming up right now or should be? Well, this is my personal view, I guess, but something I've seen in research, we've had lots of conversations recently with many, many different people with different viewpoints, different parts of the world on what's needed in climate change action as part of our support for our clients and donors. Something I kind of picked up by drawing the dots together on that for myself was that the scale and pace of change which is required is going to need people taking like personal risks whether that's to their careers their reputations to their personal safety as well you know if you're an investigative journalist in a west african oil extractive state which is trying to kind of uncover malpractice or corruption in that system then you're taking a personal risk but yet that could be extremely powerful in terms of helping to deconstruct the power of the oil and gas industry, which is going to be really important to accelerating decarbonisation. And funders will be potentially reluctant, understandably, to fund that kind of work because it's putting people at risk. So it's kind of how do you how do you support those kind of actors who are who are even prepared to take those sort of risks to to take risks in in to take those kind of actions in more safe ways or to help whistleblowers in general to get information out of companies, whether that's auditors or law firms or those extractive companies, again, showing malpractice, misreporting, et cetera, that helps to uncover some of the real deep-seated problems that need to be unlocked to get the end of oil and the end of gas and the end of coal to be faster. So, those sorts of more approaches which involve people taking more risks and how do you de-risk that for people rather than just not fund it. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. And I guess on a, so on a, on a more strategic level, I suppose, you're someone who spent a, a long time at, at Forum and you're now in the sort of philanthropic advisory space. Mm. Obviously, at the core of forum strategy is this idea of system change. I suppose if funders are thinking about developing a system change strategy for their portfolio, what might be the kinds of things that you would flag to them? What would that mean from where you're sitting, I guess? Yeah, I think there's two things. One is is to have more of a kind of curious emergent mindset which is experimental so there are very established as i said there's very established ways of addressing the climate challenge which is more deployment you know reforestation accelerating renewables um even quite clear-cut plays or quite logical plays like funding organizations taking strategic litigation action against the permitting of new coal-fired power stations where you say we funded that law case, that was the outcome from it. That's all really important and necessary. 
there's also a need for accelerated innovation in how you get movements to be really powerful and successful. Lays climate up the agenda politically and in businesses so that the action starts to align with the science. It's kind of messier and it's newer and it's harder to understand. So being prepared to work with that kind of complexity and uncertainty, I think, is a really important part of the systems, being a systemic funder. And then, I guess, looking at how you how you address kind of power structures as well for your funding, whether that's purposefully funding underrepresented leaders in the climate space, in the global south, BIPOC-led organisations, smaller organisations, those working on climate justice, which we are particularly seen to get funded, as well as kind of organisations taking new approaches to the climate uh, emergency and having sort of diversity of thinking and, and viewpoint on it. Brilliant. Those are all very, very good tips. Forum can learn from that as well, I'm sure. Um, thank you, Will. Uh, I have asked you some big, big questions and you, you have been really game to answer them all with such insight and eloquence on a Friday afternoon. I particularly loved what you said about tuning into people's passions and what they're really interested in, because that would also create a more kind of enduring, programmatic, philanthropic commitment, which, as you say, is something we certainly need to see, as well as also this, this idea of funding bolder movements and raised ambitions and ensuring that that sort of brings new voices to the solutions table. So thank you. And thank you to everyone who has tuned in. I hope you found this as fascinating and inspiring as I have. We're going to do this again, keeping with the theme of funding system change. So please log on to thefuturecenter.org. Tell us what you want to hear more about and who you want to be listening to. Or even if you just want to connect with us and learn a bit more about the work that we do, it's all on thefuturecenter.org. Thanks again to Will and talk to you in a few weeks. Thank you.